From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Another week, another spasm of violence, this time on a Virginia baseball field. The third most powerful Republican in the House, the majority whip, Steve Scalise, and four others shot, injured, and hospitalized. House Republicans were practicing for a friendly summer showdown with the Democrats when America's pastime was suddenly desecrated by America's other pastime. The latest active shooter, from all indications, was also a politically active shooter. A left-wing protester enraged at Donald Trump and the GOP, taking a perverted sense of justice into his own hands, whereupon the police, the media, political leaders, and polemical partisans responded as if by reflex, with the all-too-familiar combination of confusion, bravery, compassion, prejudgment, accusation, and hysteria. As we have long observed, chaotic breaking news coverage often obscures the very events it seeks so breathlessly to illuminate. When the mayhem springs from politics, truth and context get more elusive still. And so, regrettably, we are obliged to offer our latest breaking news consumer handbook, Political Violence Edition. This could be the first political rhetorical terrorist act and that has to stop. I think it was politically motivated, and I think we'll probably find either a mental illness component or some kind of psychological disorder. Those strange Facebook postings, almost like something out of Lee Harvey Oswald in a way. Someone that was getting ready to do some type of assassination. Point one, be cautious of labels. Terrorism, assassination, hate crime, and lunacy are neither precise terms nor mutually exclusive. Each episode is distinct unto itself, and the impulse to label it is more apt to distort the underlying truth than to clarify it. Point two, be aware of the political context, in this case apparently hyper-partisanship and outrage about Trump's America, but be wary of assigning responsibility to a cohort of which the killer was but one member. Iowa Republican Steve King blamed the left for Wednesday's shooting, And he wasn't alone. I only hope that the Democrats do tone down the rhetoric. The rhetoric has been outrageous. The finger pointing, the tone, and the anger directed at Donald Trump, his supporters. That was Republican Congressman Chris Collins of New York. Here's former House Speaker and presidential candidate Newt Gingrich on Fox News. You've had a series of things which send signals that tell people that it's okay to hate Trump, it's okay to think of Trump in violent terms, it's okay to consider assassinating Trump, and then suddenly we're supposed to rise above it until the next time? Remember that correlation is not causation, and even incendiary political rhetoric is not necessarily incitement. There's also the physician-heal-thyself factor. This week's accusations ignore the fact that the vandalism, violence, and hate crime of the Trump era has been perpetrated predominantly by those aligned with the political right. In that vein, point three, be alert for political opportunism. Keep your hypocrisy and lie detectors switched on. For instance, conspiracy nut Alex Jones tweeted that, quote, CNN just endorsed hashtag GOP shooting terrorist attack. Said shooter, quote, was not evil. What CNN actually aired was the statement of one of the dead shooter's friends endorsing that opinion in no way, shape, or form. 
Another Twitter meme sprang from a March Fox News headline wildly mischaracterizing a call to political action from Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Misquote, we need more marching, blood, death on the streets. In fact, Lynch had been invoking the history of civil rights protest and those martyred in the struggle. And it has been people, individuals, who have banded together, ordinary people, who simply saw what needed to be done and came together and supported those ideals who have made the difference. They've marched. They've bled. Yes, some of them have died. This is hard. Every good thing is. We have done this before. We can do this again. Point four, thoughts and prayers sentiments are perfunctory and have long since lost any meaning. Here was President Trump on Wednesday morning. America is praying for you and America is praying for all of the victims of this terrible shooting. And House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. We send our thoughts and prayers to our colleague, Steve Scalise. Compassion boilerplate does nothing to make sense of the tragic event. As such, point number five, pay as close attention to what politicians do not say as to what they do say. Did Pelosi draw a distinction between righteous resistance and mindless violence? Did she call attention to the killer's semi-automatic weapons or his history of domestic violence? These may or may not have been salient or appropriate observations in the moment, but it's worth mulling over why she demurred. Likewise, her opposite number in the House, Speaker Paul Ryan, who might have played to his GOP base, but notably did not. We are united. We are united in our shock. We are united in our anguish. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Ryan had ample opportunity to point fingers to conflate rabid political attacks on the Republican Party with the murder attempt, to chide, as many in the left have in the wake of right-wing violence, that words have consequences. He chose not to, opting rather to frame the attack as an attack on our democracy. And maybe we should mull that over as well. Of course, in our hyper-connected age, nothing happens without a reason, preferably located conveniently within the same news cycle. Thus, Wednesday's horrific shooting was all about Shakespeare. This shooting took place with a background, an environment of political violence. We don't have to look far to remember Shakespeare in the park. Fox's Stuart Varney is referring to a production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar mounted by the public theater in New York City, in which the title character is very clearly meant to be Donald Trump. Although the play has been running for almost a month, the right-wing media let loose the dogs of war when they discovered that, spoiler alert... Caesar gets killed. Liberal left-wing nutjobs in Hollywood and Broadway have reached a new low. The President Trump look-alike being stabbed to death on stage. If we had done that with Obama, if we had been a part of Obama, forget it, they would, they would be all over it. Never mind that a Minneapolis production of Julius Caesar in 2012 did depict Obama as Caesar, and no one was all over it. And never mind that Julius Caesar has been used as an allegory for contemporary leaders since well, basically since its first performance in 1599. This was different. At least some of the play's sponsors thought so. Bank of America is the latest company to withdraw its funding 
for the public theater after their controversial production of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Delta Airlines announced this decision yesterday. The company stated the graphic staging of Julius Caesar at this summer's free Shakespeare in the Park does not reflect Delta Airlines values. The president's son, Eric Trump, thanked the companies in a tweet. He said dropping sponsorship was the right thing to do. Even the National Endowment for the Arts, which did not fund the production, felt the need to distance itself from it. Meanwhile, the pushback to the right-wing outrage has been less about artistic censorship than artistic illiteracy. So Julius Caesar, not a pro-assassination play at all. Unambiguous. Lois Beckett is a senior reporter for The Guardian. I mean, it's a play about how an assassination ended democracy for 2,000 years in the West. That's what Oscar Eustace, the director, said. So to suggest that someone could go watch Julius Caesar and think that assassination was a great idea and get all excited about it is totally bizarre. To Beckett, the production's message ultimately is aimed at the liberal members of the audience, although it certainly didn't go easy on the president. Trump comes out in a red tie with this blonde hair and he makes these big hand gestures and his wife has this like Slovenian accent. Octavia Caesar is dressed in this blazer with a bulletproof vest over it. Just like Jared Kushner. Just like, and he's like checking his cell phone over someone's mm -hmm. dead body. I mean, it is pretty broad. The audience loved it. You know, it's Shakespeare in the Park. It's outside. We like cheap jokes. But when it came to the point of the assassination, it was very sober. I rarely hear 2,000 people just completely silent. And I thought it was staged very carefully, too, and that the actors on stage just really seemed overcome by the shock of violence. As we know from this week, violence enters in a way that is just stunning. And even people who are planning it seemed overcome by what they had actually done. And there was just blood everywhere. And one of the conspirators tried to say something like liberty or justice. And it came out as a whisper because ideology like that in the face of violence just sort of seems meaningless. I thought it was very powerful and captured the way that violence overwhelms any justification for it. Both Delta and the National Endowment for the Arts were connected to a 2012 production of Julius Caesar in which Obama was depicted as Caesar. In that case, I think it was right-wing conspirators plotting to kill him. People noted in, in reviews, and Obama's kids didn't take to Twitter to say that this was a horrible provocation. It just was a play, and that was all right back in 2012. So what do you think's changed? What's so scary, actually, about the political moment is that just a couple days ago, we would look at Julius Caesar and the idea of inciting violence against the president, and that would seem so bizarre because there hadn't been, as now there has been, a left-wing person who has, as far as we know, maybe plotted an attack against Republican members of Congress for that mishmash of ideological and and perhaps mental health issues, we don't know. And that's what's scary about feeling as we are like caught in history, you know, looking at history from hundreds of years, like the pattern is clear. But actually, it's the smallest things that sort of send us in another direction. Like with Kathy Griffin, if we didn't have that, would we have had this Shakespeare? Would we have had this controversy? Exactly. And, and yet now theaters across the country are going to grapple with this. I mean, that's what's so sad about the National Endowment for the Arts, which had this pretty hysterical reaction. They're under attack, and the Trump administration has suggested defunding them. And they're fighting a good fight to keep giving dollars to artists who need them all across the country. So I look at the National Endowment for the Arts, and I say, you know, Trump is their boss, and his son's voices are influential. Um, so I don't look at them in the same way that I do 
Bank of America or Delta, where, you know, Trump is not their boss. (laughs) Now, a few weeks ago, you did a roundup of theatrical performances that have tried to comment on the age of Trump. It's a challenge, isn't it? With Trump, the challenge is, like, he is an incredibly successful entertainer. He does really good shows. And now his whole administration is a thrilling drama that has family members and enemies inside and outside the White House. Being a journalist at a Trump rally feels like being an accessory to a performance artist. And so the idea that you can, as an artist, compete with an entertainer-in-chief who's so good is really hard. Trump rules the spectacle. And so Artists have to do something else and have to wrestle not with a lack of attention to what the president is doing or to his policies, but trying to help audiences understand how to cut through the spectacle, understand how to orient ourselves where we're overcome with knowledge of what's happened. You've said that political art at its best helps us transcend petty squabbles and grapple with deeper, more difficult issues. Do you think that's even possible anymore? I mean— The public puts on a play warning against political violence and is accused of inciting it. If art's ability to help us bridge the gaps relies on us having a shared set of facts and experiences, a shared language, and we've lost that, where does art fit in? I'm not sure that art can necessarily bring us together in an easy way, but I think it allows us to think about politics, to experience our politics, in a much smarter way than the data points or the policy proposals or the endless spin masters that we hear. Before the election, actually, I went to Taylor Mack's 24-decade history of popular music, which was literally a 24-hour show going through 240 years of American history nonstop. So you showed up at noon, and you weren't allowed to leave till noon the next day. And Taylor Mack, the artist who designed the production, sang constantly during those 24 hours bathroom? <laughs> Took bathroom breaks, but like sort of right before and right after. So it was a, it was a mm-hmm. really quick break. Uh, so I went to see this performance art piece about American democracy the morning after the revelations that Trump had talked about women in the Access Hollywood tapes about sexual assault. And, you know, I had been stuck in the news listening to CNN and, and the people that we choose to comment on politics are people who used to be employed by campaigns and economists and even journalists. And we're asking them like, What is America? Who are we? What do we want as a country? And the language we have for talking about what America is or what it means to be American are so cheap and so impoverished and so lacking in history. And so that's what I think art can do is get us beyond the was Trump's victory about economic anxiety or was it because people are racist? As if those two things were in opposition, as if racism and anxiety and Class and poverty don't all play into each other in very particular ways. And how about wealth and the desire to protect it, since we now know that basically the Trump voter was the Romney voter. Right. And the thing about art is that multiple things can be true at the same time. That's why you cannot say that Julius Caesar is about how assassination is great or how we should assassinate a leader. I think so much of what we're dealing with right now are opposite things being true simultaneously. And art gives us a way to to be in that experience and how our choices are not just about simple self-interest or one calculation, but can be self-defeating and contradictory and change in ways that we don't understand and we don't even realize it until after we've already changed. So you mentioned Taylor Mack's 24-hour musical marathon. I can imagine that 
kind of captive experience <laughs> forces you into directions that you might not go. I just wonder, what did his compilation of American song tell you, if anything, that you might not have realized without it? One of the important reminders it had for me was how much violence and trauma are part of the American experience, not just today, but he starts in the first hour of the show with this Scottish ballad, um, which is about Highlanders fleeing after they lose a war, about leaving a country for a new land with your home set aflame and having to start again. Our goods lay in the snow And our houses were burning I will go I will go So many Americans have been refugees in different ways. The particular dream and optimism and buoyancy that is so characteristically American are founded in this way on violence and trauma and fear. And this violence that people experienced and then visited on other people and this chain of exclusion from the beginning, we founded our own land on pushing other people out. Meanwhile, stealing the culture and the songs and the art of the people that we imprisoned or cast out. I was speaking, as one does now, to a neo-Nazi for an article. And he said, white Americans have their distinctive culture separate from Europe that is, is only American and only white. And I was like, oh, what what part of American culture is, is only American and only white? And he was like, Faulkner. And I was like, no, Faulkner is not only about white Americans. That's crazy. And he really struggled. And finally he said, well, the mountain dulcimer. That's a, a white ethnic instrument. And I was like, okay, so you want to create a white ethno state in North America where you don't have to listen to jazz and you don't have to listen to rock and roll. You can only listen to the dulcimer. Like, who wants to be part of that country? I don't want to be part of that country. <laughs> so if you were the king of culture and you could force our Congress to watch a piece of art. <laughs> oh, it would be Taylor Mac. Lock them in a room, have someone sprinkle them with glitter and feed them and make them sing little songs awkwardly together and think about the weight of American history feel the weight of American history. We make so many decisions as if we just, you know, everything, only the things happened in the past two years are relevant, and everything that we have now is is hundreds of years bearing fruit. I think that we could all do to, to sit with that for a little while. Lois, thank you very much. Thanks. Lois Beckett is a senior reporter for The Guardian. Coming up, secrecy, evasion, deflection, and diversion. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Secrecy, evasion, and stonewalling define the news in Congress this week. I do not have any recollection. I do not remember. I did not remember that. If I had remembered it or, or if it actually occurred, which I don't remember that it did. Tuesday, the Senate Rules Committee issued a statement saying it would bar reporters from filming interviews in Senate hallways, citing safety reasons. Senate Republicans have a secret health care bill. They plan to vote on this month. But they are literally refusing to show anyone or any Democrats or the public what is in it. 
As Senate Republicans furtively crafted their replacement for Obamacare, the story remained absent from the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and the Wall Street Journal for most of the week. No doubt the secrecy was part of the reason why. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon joins us to discuss the Iron Curtain shrouding the health care bill. Senator Wyden, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again, Brooke. So we know McConnell hopes to pass the new health care bill by July 4th without public hearings or the opportunity to propose amendments. Explain why the GOP doesn't plan to publicly release an early draft of the health bill. What I think they understand is that this bill, if it sees the light of day, is going to generate enormous opposition with the American people. Okay, for 25 points, who said this? Fast-tracking a major legislative overhaul such as health care reform without the benefit of a full and transparent debate does a disservice to the American people, to which he added, and it would make it absolutely clear that they intend to carry out their plan on a purely partisan basis. Sounds like the kind of thing I might have said. (laughs) It's Mitch McConnell in 2009 when the Democrats wanted to fast-track Obamacare. So does everybody do it? How is the situation different? First thing, everybody doesn't do it. And as you know, I sit on the Finance Committee. We had more than 50 hearings, roundtables, and walkthroughs on health care reform. We're talking about Obamacare now? Correct. We spent eight days processing the legislation. In the open, more than two dozen Republican amendments were agreed to, and the Finance Committee posted legislation online for six days before we began going forward. And then the Senate spent 25 consecutive days in session on health reform. So I think you can tell there's quite a contrast between (laughs) what was done in 2009 and what's being done now. Okay, so on Tuesday, the Senate Rules Committee suddenly told reporters to stop interviewing senators in the hallways of the Capitol. And then a few hours later, outrage ensued. The restrictions were lifted. Do you think that this was a rather blunt force move to stifle coverage of the bill? That's for sure. Republicans didn't want to answer questions about a horrendous health care bill. And the thought for them was, hey, we can accomplish our objectives by just shutting down reporters, banning TV cameras from the Capitol who might hold elected officials accountable. But what about the safety issues, Senator? Some speculated that the decision was made to address the ever-increasing number of reporters crowding senators in the hallways. Our halls can get crowded, but we've set up all kinds of approaches over the years, ropes in some places to keep reporters from blocking walkways, but this notion that there is some safety calamity here and because of this horribly dangerous situation, we ought to chuck the First Amendment aside, I don't think it makes sense. What does it say about American democracy at the moment that elected officials can craft such a consequential law behind closed doors and that it's tolerated? First of all, it's not going to be tolerated. We're speaking out every single day in every single forum. 
for the next two weeks, it is all in, all the time, on health care. For example, in the Finance Committee yesterday, health care came up and mention was made on the Republican side that somehow this was being treated as a partisan divide. And I spoke up within a minute or two and said, whoa, it's a partisan divide? If you're going to insist on actually being able to read a bill, that's what we're talking about here. The Senate Finance Committee is the committee with jurisdiction over Medicare, Medicaid, taxes, and we have not seen this bill. That's just not right. We have to stabilize the private health insurance market. Both sides ought to come together take steps to hold down the cost of prescription medicine. We have ideas on that. I'm sure Republicans have. But that's the right way to proceed in the open. As far as the Finance Committee, which is the go-to committee for billions and billions and billions of dollars of health care payments, the secrecy surrounding this bill is without precedent. I have never seen anything like this. Okay, next up on the secrecy docket. During Attorney General Jeff Sessions' Senate hearing this week, Democracy Now! noted that he said, I don't remember or I don't recall, 26 times. You accused him of stonewalling the Russia investigation when he ducked questions about his conversations with the president and the Russian ambassador. Sessions claimed he was merely following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. Is that a fair interpretation of executive privilege? No, and, and no one really knows what these historic uh, practices are. And it's the president's authority to claim executive privilege. What the Trump administration is trying to do is have the best of both worlds, and it doesn't add up. On one hand, the president doesn't want to take the heat for claiming executive privilege. So he sends his subordinates up to Capitol Hill to offer all kinds of arguments as to why they shouldn't answer questions. They say things like it wouldn't be appropriate to answer. Mm -hmm. And so we asked, well, where in the law does it talk about that being a legal basis for not answering a question? Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for your interest. Ron Wyden is the senior U.S. senator for Oregon, ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee and a member of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee and Budget Committee. Republican Senators Tom Cotton, Cory Gardner, and Pat Toomey did not respond to our requests for an interview. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Mike Lee declined. An investigation is a, quote, careful examination or search in order to discover facts or gain information. Anyway, that's what the dictionary says. The GOP seems to have an uh, alternate definition. Investigation, a formalistic exercise whereby the investigators act as defense lawyers working to exonerate those testifying before the evidence is collected. This was Republican Senator John Cornyn giving the third degree on Tuesday to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Attorney General Sessions, former Director Comey, in his letter to FBI employees when he uh, was terminated, started this way. He said, I have long believed that a president can fire an FBI director for any reason or no reason at all. Do you agree with that? Yes, and I think that was uh, good for him to say. 
And this was Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr and Senator John McCain upbraiding Democratic Senator Kamala Harris for persisting in a question being avoided by the witness. Did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for your refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been asked you? should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair <laughs> to control the hearing. Senator Harris, let him answer. Well, sure, the politics of this for the GOP are obviously bad. Russians, unreleased tax returns, shadowy finances, intelligence leaks, false testimony, and bizarre eruptions from Trump himself. Both houses of Congress dragged their feet for months because if Trump goes down, their grip on power could go with him. But come on, Russian meddling in our sacred election, national security, democracy itself, they had to respond to fulfill their promise to learn the truth. So it is absolutely crucial that every day we spend trying to separate fact from fiction. And that means before rushing to judgment, we get all the pertinent information. It is our responsibility to get to the bottom of what exactly happened due to Russian involvement in our elections. Well, maybe getting to the not quite middle of things. As news broke Wednesday night that the president himself is being investigated by special counsel Robert Mueller for possible obstruction of justice, the Republican National Committee stopped even pretending. It issued a set of talking points to its army of pals and pundits to dismiss any notion of illegality and declare the president and his men victims of a witch hunt. There is no case for obstruction of justice, says one point. Another, the special counsel has struck out trying to prove collusion and is shifting to obstruction in an effort to save face. Another, these leaks are inexcusable, outrageous, and illegal. The leaks are the only crime here. And another, how much longer is this investigation-slash-fishing expedition going to go on? And in no time at all, the talking points turned into real live sound bites. Trump isn't holding back his fury. Tweeting Thursday, they made up a phony collusion with the Russian story, found zero proof. So now they go for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. A spokesman for the president's personal lawyer said the FBI leak of information regarding the president is outrageous, inexcusable, and illegal. This is a fishing expedition to try and run out the clock. Of course, none of these voices of derision have any idea of what the current state of the investigation is, much less what may yet be learned. Nor do they or anyone else know if there's evidence of collusion between Russian agents and the Trump campaign. But even if no evidence of that emerges, why would that render other possible crimes, from financial irregularities to obstruction, trivial or irrelevant? Watergate was a third-rate burglary. What mattered was what the investigation revealed. As for the fishing expedition crack, holy moly, first of all, those are really, really effective for catching fish. But more to the point, when the subject was the fatal attack on a U.S. diplomatic compound in Benghazi, the GOP sent out a fleet of trawlers. A nakedly partisan House Special Committee spent two years and $7 million trying to find evidence of negligence and duplicity by then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The fleet returned with not so much as a sardine. If only the Republican Party had been so thrifty then, think of the money and anxiety it would have saved. 
But now what the GOP seeks to save is its own skin. So remember those buzz phrases, witch hunt, fishing expedition, there is no case, and of course, outrageous, inexcusable leaks. Or actually, don't bother, because the pointed talkers are fanned out everywhere, making sure you will not be able to forget them. Donald Trump's Twitter account has presented a unique and uniquely confusing challenge for the public. Are his tweets official statements? Stream of consciousness musings? Both? Last week, Twitter user Russell Neese released RealPressSec Bot, a Twitter bot that automatically reformats the president's tweets into official-looking White House statements reminding readers that while those tweets might be sandwiched between musings from at Taylor Swift 13 and at The Ellen Show, they are nothing less than proclamations from the highest office in the country. And yet the question remains, what do they mean legally? Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Bob. On Monday, the 9th Circuit Court of Appeals published a unanimous decision upholding the block on the president's Muslim travel ban. And buried in a footnote was a mention of one of his tweets. That's right. We need a travel ban for certain dangerous countries, not some politically correct term that won't help us protect our people. What the Ninth Circuit was trying to do was parse this question of intention. What was President Trump's intention in crafting the executive order, now the second executive order that we're litigating? His lawyers are saying that this travel ban isn't based on animus toward Muslims or even toward these six countries. It's just based on an anxiety about their vetting procedures, right? That we want extreme vetting and we don't have it. But what Trump had tweeted was that these countries themselves were sort of bad, dangerous countries. And in the text of the tweet, he seems to undermine what his very lawyers are saying. And so what the judges effectively did was they said, look, we think there is a sort of tainted motive here. Here are his very own words. All of that undermines the argument that the purposes here are benign. They then go on to cite Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, who had confirmed a week earlier that the president's tweets are, quote, considered official statements by the president of the United States. So not only are they citing the president, then they're citing Sean Spicer to say these are official statements, so we are taking them officially. Now, the courts, historically, if I'm not mistaken, have paid little mind to campaign rhetoric or dog whistling. They just read the official text and make their judgments accordingly, no? Courts have tried really hard to stay very clear of getting into what Donald Trump's defenders are now calling psychoanalysis. They don't want to get into the heads of legislators. They don't want to probe the dark inner channels of why it is that people do what they do. And so generally there is a tendency to stay very clear 
earlier as a judge from this job of what did he really mean when he said this other thing. Sometimes it does happen, particularly in cases where what we're probing for is an improper animus. Is there a religious bias? Is there some kind of animus based on country of origin? Then the courts are actually invited to look past the platitudes and the signing statements and the, you know, anodyne remarks that are being made because the courts have to pierce the actual intention and start to look at things that are said in campaigns or in the media. Examples? There was a constitutional challenge to Obama's executive action on immigration. And a Texas judge took very seriously some comments that then-President Obama made at a rally when he was trying to mollify angry protesters. And throughout the lower court opinion, the judge references those remarks and says, look, Obama clearly intended to change the law. Therefore, he violated his authority. The Supreme Court has not weighed in on this issue. And in fact, that case about Obama's executive order on immigration, the Supreme Court batted it away and never even got to the issue. There was a legal scholar named Kate Shaw who listed some benchmarks for when to pay close attention to informal statements from politicians. Right. Kate Shaw is a professor at Cardozo Law School in New York. And what she says is, A, if the president is showing an intent to enter the legal arena, you start to take it seriously. So if he's opining on something that is a legal question that the court is grappling with, B, if it touches on foreign affairs, or C, if it shows real evidence of governmental purpose. In other words, if these tweets are showing the kind of animus or hostility that the court are probing for, then it's okay to look. And what about simply if informal remarks contradict the official story? Again, that is what we certainly saw when the Texas District Court looked at Obama's executive order on immigration status. So certainly there is a plausible argument to be made that Whenever a president says something that undermines his own litigation strategy or his own Justice Department's interpretation of the law, that can be fair game. I think what it would do is chill an enormous amount of presidential speech. We want presidents to talk to us informally. We like the fireside chat. Americans love to have an interaction with the president on Twitter. And so the idea that each and every time a spontaneous statement by the president is made and there's some distance between that and a formal policy. The courts are going to jump in. I think it sounds kind of awful to all of us. Once every word you say in public becomes charged, then I guess it does limit your capacity to even be human. That's exactly right. Judges don't get to talk unfiltered ever off the record. And when they do, they get clobbered for it. And so I think it's just the ultimate irony that a bunch of people who have pretty much forced themselves to live by judicial canons that say, don't ever talk off the record, are getting to assess whether Donald Trump has to be bound by the same rule. Now, there's yet one other Twitter wrinkle. When the president decides to block people from getting his messages and block them from being able to reply, the question is, does that constitute government suppression 
of speech. Last week, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia wrote a letter on behalf of a few of Trump's Twitter followers who had been blocked. And the letter said, look, you don't get to block people from your Twitter feed because you have, by using Twitter the way you choose to use Twitter, Mr. President, created what First Amendment scholars call a designated public forum where you say official things and other people interact with you. And you don't get to ban people. You have elected officials across the ideological spectrum who opt to block Twitter followers or block Facebook followers. And the ACLU has a very serious First Amendment argument that they make that says, look, if you're not going to go to your town hall meeting, if you're only going to have a Facebook live meeting and then you block people, you are effectively blocking them out of maybe the only First Amendment forum to which they have access. It is a part of this larger debate we're having about whether Twitter and Facebook and social media are, quote, real for speech purposes and how we're going to think about them in rigorous ways going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Coming up, the signs and symbols of an island in search of itself. This is on the media. This is on the media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Did you know that Puerto Rico teeters on the brink of financial calamity? Probably not. The U.S. territory and the 3.5 million American citizens who live there barely register in our headlines or in our concern. This is how Zika, the virus linked to microcephaly in babies, was discussed as it spread from South and Central America. We do not believe that there will be a major outbreak of Zika in the United States. Except it had already hit Puerto Rico, where there have been 40,000 confirmed cases to date, over 3,000 of them pregnant women. But the island often doesn't count, even though it has more residents than 20 U.S. states. However, you may have heard about Puerto Rico this week because they were heading to the polls last Sunday to become one of us. Just ahead, a major push for Puerto Rico to become the 51st state. Well, Puerto Rico comes one step closer to becoming a state. The island overwhelmingly voted for statehood with nearly half a million votes. Now that the uh, people have spoken in Puerto Rico, this is um, something that Congress has to address. Actually, though, the people of Puerto Rico have not spoken because most of them boycotted Sunday's plebiscite. In a time of desperate economic crisis on the island, there was little appetite for an $8 million non-binding vote, especially since the real power lies with a Republican Congress on the mainland, which is disinclined to accept a broke, Spanish-speaking, Democratic-leaning 51st state. Nevertheless, Puerto Rico is at a crossroads, less about its political status than its very identity. Producer Alana Casanova-Burgess reported this week from the island where the words and symbols Puerto Ricans use to define themselves are in flux. On San Jose Street in Old San Juan last weekend, you almost couldn't tell there was about to be an election. Not only because so many Puerto Ricans were going to boycott the vote, 
but also because selfies were happening. Did you want a picture of yourself there? Five years ago, artists took the shabby wooden door of a nearly ruined brick colonial building and they painted it in the red, white, and blue of the Puerto Rican flag. It became iconic, the stuff of postcards and the background to family photos on the island and for the diaspora. Like for Joel, now of Maryland but formerly of Mayagüez, who arrived to find an austere black and white flag instead. It's like a symbol of what is going on in Puerto Rico and for me it represents a little bit of sadness, a little bit, you know, like desperation. That's because last summer the island woke up to a shock. President Obama had just signed the PROMESA Act, which set up a board to supervise Puerto Rico's finances. Facing over $123 billion in debt from bonds and pensions, the island's government said it couldn't pay back bondholders and provide essential services, which had already been slashed after a decade of economic crisis. Carmen Maldonado was visiting from Naranjito in Puerto Rico. Algunos protestan, algunos no les gusta, pero lo sabe lo que lo que significa. All Puerto Ricans know what it means. Some like it, some don't, but they all know what it means. A few words about the Puerto Rican flag, the normal one. It is everywhere on the island, hanging from balconies and stuck on bumpers, on bikinis and hats and handkerchiefs, and in diaspora neighborhoods on the mainland. The flag was actually designed in 1895 in New York City by a group of Puerto Rican revolutionaries working with Cubans on a joint push for independence from Spain. There's a famous line from that time by the Puerto Rican poet Lola Rodriguez de Tillo that Cuba and Puerto Rico are two wings of the same bird. And in fact, the red and blue of their flags are inverted. Cuba became independent. Puerto Rico became part of the U.S. in 1898. But from 1948 until 1957, it was actually illegal to fly the flag on the island and even to own it. The Puerto Rican legislature passed a law that made any discussion of independence, including songs, a crime. Nosotros queremos la libertad. Nuestros machetes nos la Around that time, the U.S. relationship with Puerto Rico changed. There is a saying in Puerto Rico that you have to give someone the chicken wing so that you can eat the chicken breast. Hay que dar del ala para comer de la pechuga. It was a policy of tolerance and concessions in exchange for maintaining a stable colony during the Cold War. Emilio Pantojas is author of the book Crónicas del Colapso, Chronicles of the Collapse, about the history of the fiscal crisis here. We met on a wet morning last week outside the Capitol building in San Juan, in front of a row of bronze statues of the nine U.S. presidents who have visited Puerto Rico. We have Obama, Gerald Ford, Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy, Eisenhower, Truman, Roosevelt, and then the other one, Herbert Hoover, and Theodore Roosevelt. Although Puerto Ricans have been American citizens since 1917, they can only participate in the primaries. They cannot vote for president. And most of the visits memorialized here were short. Some weren't even official. And Obama came for just a few hours, right? Yeah, he, actually he came for a fundraiser. And so Pantojas has no love for these statues. But they do help tell a story about how the U.S. has shaped Puerto Rico. He says that coming out of World War II, there was a consensus that decolonization would help avoid another catastrophe. It became a topic of conversation at the Yalta Conference, where Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin met to discuss what would come next for war-torn Europe. Roosevelt was harassing Churchill to decolonize the British Empire. He also harassed Stalin. And he said, you need to release Poland. And Stalin said, the Soviet Union has been invaded twice during the 20th century. 
always through the Polish corridor. So what do you want me to do? And then he replied to Roosevelt, and what are you going to do with Puerto Rico? You have a colony, you have to decolonize. Roosevelt was irated, and he said, you know, we have no colony, Puerto Rico is different, but the fact of the matter was that Puerto Rico was a colony. Roosevelt dies, comes Harry S. Truman. The first thing that Truman does is he appoints a Puerto Rican governor, because before 1946, governors were appointed by the United States president, and they were all Americans, white Americans with English names. The next step was to allow Puerto Ricans to elect their own governors, and then in 1952 to allow them to adopt their own constitution. And so what you have is a colony by consent. That was when Puerto Rico was rebranded as a commonwealth. In Spanish, commonwealth is known as Estado Libre Asociado, or ELA, ELA, meaning Associated Free State. Which is not. Uh, that's a misnomer. Because Puerto Rico is neither free nor a state. And in the last year, that's become even clearer, says Gretchen Sierra Zorita, who's with the National Puerto Rican Agenda, which advocates for the island in Washington, D.C. But, you know, the ELA is kind of like a meaningless word. Last summer, Puerto Rico was shaken by a series of developments in Washington, D.C. First, the Supreme Court ruled in a double jeopardy case related to gun trafficking, which also tackled a bigger question of Puerto Rico's autonomy. In this case, we decide whether Puerto Rico and the United States count as separate sovereigns under that doctrine. The justices ruled that Puerto Rico isn't distinct from the U.S. when it comes to prosecuting crimes. Then the U.S. Congress established that humiliating fiscal review board. And so this House measure would create a federal oversight board to negotiate with investors to determine how much Puerto Rico will pay them back. That board would also oversee the island's finances. And one House Democrat of Puerto Rican descent says federal oversight board is an assault on the island's sovereignty. Puerto Rico's economy is already tethered to the U.S. It can only receive imports on U.S.-owned and operated vessels, making goods more expensive. Washington granted tax breaks to companies that invested in Puerto Rico, then took them away, spiking unemployment. To raise money, the Puerto Rican government then turned to bonds. But the island's status meant no taxes could be collected on them, and paying out on the bonds had priority over any other spending. But for many Puerto Ricans, the board appointed in Washington was the last straw that exposed an ugly truth. They were never really free. There was no doubt that we were a colony. Gretchen Sierra Zorita. And I do use the word colony a lot more freely. I thought maybe we should have stickers. You know how they have stickers where you have the outline of the geographic area you're identifying? So the whole island would be in black, and maybe inside in, in white you would put colony. I actually think it's quite spiffy, but I'm not sure anybody would understand <laughs> Puerto Ricans were promised that they weren't a colony. Yarimar Bonilla is a professor at Rutgers University studying the statehood movement in Puerto Rico. She created the website PR Syllabus. That the ELA was a political status, that was a decolonizing status. The U.S. government has made clear that that's not the case. And this is why there's this movement, Se Acabaron Las Promesas, the end of the promises. On May 1st, thousands marched in San Juan to protest budget cuts and demand an audit of the debt. Online, memes mock public officials and austerity measures, including a parody of the Justin Bieber hit, which lampoons the governor. But it's not always so funny. In old San Juan, Andres Vera and his wife were visiting from Naranjito and taking pictures of the black and white protest flag. 
Nosotros vivimos de una generación donde nos criaron en las escuelas públicas diciéndonos que Puerto Rico era... He told me they are of a generation where they learned in public school that they lived in an independent territory that was only partially associated with the United States. But they now know that the U.S. Congress wields the real power, which means Puerto Rico is a colony. It was for them a sudden revelation. This has been like a slap in the face. That's right. It's a juncture of sadness, uneasiness, and a lot of anxiety. I visited the offices of Dr. Alfredo Carasquillo, a psychoanalyst and the head of the Institute for Leadership, Entrepreneurship, and Citizenship at the University of the Sacred Heart in San Juan. He also happens to be married to the mayor. It is important for Puerto Ricans to put into words what is being felt at this point, to question the narratives that we have used to name and to describe our relationship with the U.S., for most Puerto Ricans, it's a broken promise. A promise that really the U.S. never made, that we built, that we constructed. How do you deal with that kind of realization, with that kind of slap in the face? It's tough because it requires us to go through a mourning process. For example, my mother when the economic crisis was starting, she would always say, oh, Americans will not allow this to get too serious. They will help us. Now she knows that they have not helped us huh? and that they are not interested. So Puerto Ricans have been confronted with a reality, which is that the U.S. is not what we thought it was. And perhaps for the first time in our history, we have to take charge of our own destiny. Huh? Carasquillo says part of that narrative that the U.S. would provide was shaped by the mainland's investments on the island, projects to industrialize Puerto Rico and hold it up during the Cold War as a prosperous, capitalist alternative to communist Cuba and the poverty of the rest of Latin America. The Commonwealth meant wealth. As an example of an underdeveloped land, that is going through an industrial revolution without violence and without communism, Puerto Rico has been called a showcase of America. And the narrative was, if we were able to get to that point with Commonwealth, wonder how much we can get with statehood. So in that sense, yes, the U.S. government invaded Puerto Rico. Yes, they have made decisions uh, here and there. But we are not kidnapped. But he says it's crucial for the mainland to understand Puerto Rico hasn't just taken, it's given, too. Take, for example, the number of Puerto Ricans that have been killed or who have fought in U.S. wars. Huh? The proportion of Puerto Ricans is way bigger than any other states in the U.S. So is that fair? It is up to U.S. citizens in the states to say, hey, Madam Congresswoman, Mr. Congressman, do something about Puerto Rico. Show that we are a democracy and not an, an empire. There's an identity crisis in the U.S. at stake regarding that. The U.S. wants to operate as the country that sees itself as the democracy of the world, or is it going to be a colonial power? There is an irony in Puerto Rico regarding democracy. They take voting much more seriously than Americans on the mainland do. It's not unusual for voter turnout to reach 80 percent, compared with, say, 60 for the U.S. in 2016. 
Election days are always on holidays or weekends, which is why when the two minority parties called for a boycott of this recent plebiscite on the island's status, many analysts question whether it would even be possible to keep Puerto Ricans from the polls. And yet, last Sunday, the beaches were packed, and the voter turnout was a historically low 23%. The statehood option won because those were basically the only voters to cast ballots, some wearing American flag t-shirts or lapel pins. It was another confusing plebiscite from Puerto Rico. Five years ago, an election yielded over half a million blank ballots. And in 1998, over half of the voters rejected all options and went for none of the above. I spoke to Yarimar Bonilla, the Rutgers professor, again the day after the plebiscite. She says everybody lost. The people who support statehood, they lost because this is not a vote that the statehood party can really use in Congress. I mean, we all know that 97% of Puerto Ricans don't support statehood. And I think the people who are claiming victory on the boycott, they actually lost because they have failed to produce another option for Puerto Ricans. The lack of options seems to be reflected in the lack of adequate words to describe not only what Puerto Rico wants to be, but what it currently is. That's why Bonilla is stuck on the word colony, because Puerto Rico is not a colony in the traditional sense. It comes close, but it doesn't quite capture the reality. So I feel like people are using it as a kind of placeholder for something that they don't have a fully developed concept for yet, and that perhaps they won't have a concept for it until they've realized what they want to replace it with. I would like a conversation among Puerto Ricans about what they want. What is the relationship that they want with the U.S.? And to forget about the boxes that are offered to us at the plebiscite. In the end, says psychoanalyst Alfredo Carasquillo, you have to dispense with the false narratives before you can create something new. It's a daunting undertaking. So far what we have done is uh, respond to what others, the Spanish government or the American governments, have decided regarding our history. It's very painful, but it's a beautiful opportunity to be the founders and creators of our own history. It's said that politics is the national sport of Puerto Rico, but sometimes it seems as though the political parties can't even agree on what game they're playing. Whether it's team statehood or independence or status quo, the divisions are so fierce they can't get close enough to scrap. They don't even agree, for instance, on the shade of blue on the Puerto Rican flag. Those pushing independence use a sky blue, those seeking statehood, the blue of the American flag. Even so, what I heard again and again on the island was that almost everyone is coming around to the word colony. And even if it doesn't quite fit, at least they can agree on that. For On the Media, I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loewinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. 
On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.